0: Hello and welcome UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends and families. My name is Susan Lynch and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Zachary Irving, Assistant Professor in the Corporate Department of Philosophy in the College and Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, At the University of Virginia. Professor Irving's research focuses on the philosophy of cognitive science. He has proposed a new theory of mind wandering as unguided attention. He's also examined more general philosophical topics such as mental action, conscious attention, and introspection through the lens of mind wandering. So in this podcast, Professor Irving will talk with us about mind wandering. So thank you, Professor, for speaking with me today. Thanks so much, Susan. It's a pleasure to be on here. Great. So I wonder if we could start the conversation talking about philosophy in general and what students might learn from taking your classes. You know, for background, I feel that I've learned so much from my liberal arts education and taking classes like philosophy was an important aspect of my education. So I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah. So so thinking
1: about I think one way to speak to that is to talk about sort of what philosophy is as a field. Mm -hmm. Uh, So. When you think of what a lot of fields, how a lot of fields are defined, they're defined by their sort of subject matter. Right? So, psychology is, you know, the science of the mind, or neuroscience is the science of the brain, or linguistics is uh, studies language. So, philosophy just can't be defined like that. So, you think about what just my colleagues in the in the philosophy department here at University of Virginia some of us i study the mind and brain some of my colleagues study political systems other of my colleagues study the basic structure of reality other of my colleagues study um structures of oppression like the, of, of disability or of race and it's just completely different topics some of them study logic so completely different topics on their face it looks like this massively disunified department but it's not because what we share is a sort of common method and that method are sort of tools that you can use to think about the world that we all use as philosophers and that we all teach our students. These are tools that, um, like extracting the assumptions in someone who you disagree with in their argument, or making an argument, or constructing a theory. Um, and these kind of tools for sort of rational thought are useful, you know, not just when you're talking about... The basic structure of reality, but when you're talking about mind or psychology or disability or race, um, really, when you're talking about any facet of human life. So, one of the things that you get out of philosophy is by taking the class as a philosopher or by as an academic, is you gain a way of just sort of thinking about the world that can be applied to basically any arbitrary subject matter. Um, And that's really useful when you're someone like me, who's an interdisciplinary uh, philosopher, right, who I'm doing a lot of my work is just philosophy, is just neuroscience and psychology, it's empirical work, but it's all grounded in those basic skills and tools of philosophy. So I think that's one way is just if you're doing sort of go on and do sort of more academic work or like you do work that's sort of engaged with sort of public intellectual uh, work, those basic skills are really, really useful. But more than that, even if you're not doing something that's adjacent to academia per se, the skills that I was talking about are just useful for navigating life as a human adult human being. So how I like to sort of in the first day of my classes. One of the things I like to talk about is that philosophy gives you a way to disagree with people. So I think often when we have disagreements with people, they can come in sort of two forms. Um, one is, you know, think about like the kind of disagreements you'd have at the sort of dinner table of Thanksgiving, right? So often what would happen in those conversations is people would just fight with each other and yell at each other. And it would become this thing where it's like fundamentally disrespectful. Um, the other thing though that you can get is you can just, because you're afraid of that, you can just avoid disagreement entirely and just say, well, we're not going to talk politics at dinner, right? Or we're not going to talk about whatever subject gets people going. In my family, it's, we're not going to talk about like naturopathy at dinner. So I'm not going to like yell at people about science. Um, so uh, that So you don't want that, and so you sort of, you you avoid conflict. Philosophy gives you this other way to deal with disagreement, where what you're trying to do is really rigorously engage with someone who you disagree with, but you're doing that not to beat them. You're doing that to really understand them, and you're trying to do things like extract the assumptions of their argument to build them up so that you can determine, like, are they right or are you right? And you know that, like, if you come to the settled opinion that, yeah, I, I really think I'm right about this. that that it's because it's based on this sort of solid foundation. So that's the sort of other thing that I tell my students that, that I focus on is that it's, it's giving you this sort of charitable yet rigorous way of disagreeing with another person, sometimes in the text that you're reading, right, or in your writing, right, or just in conversation with other people that I think is applicable to the sort of the, the most mundane things like Thanksgiving dinner, but then also the most sort of lofty things like a democracy, right? So these skills, I think, are just, just applicable in all of human life, just as they are applicable in my research in doing psychology and neuroscience. So it's very general skills.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I, I, I just was going through my hub, uh, the whole democracy idea. Um, I yeah, think sure. Our, our political discourse could use this type of framing so much yeah. right now. So I really appreciate that. Um, so thank you so much for that. And now onto your research. It's really hard though, right? Yeah, yeah, oh, for, um, for, for it's super,
1: it's super, super hard. And it's not always successful, right? You don't just like step into a philosophy classroom as the professor or the student and just like you're instantly good at this. It's a skill that you train for long periods of time.
0: Sometimes you fail, but when you succeed, it's really, really useful yeah so important so important these are tools and there are things that we can all learn so great thank you um so on to your research now can you explain the concept of mind wandering sure i think i can explain
1: it by a sort of story about how i got to where where i am so when i when i started re, this is about Over a decade ago, when I started my research as a a doctoral student, I was super interested in this phenomenon of mind wandering. So this is, for example, when you're on a bus or lying in a hammock or sitting in a a university university classroom and your mind sort of wanders from one topic to another. You see, you think about a camping trip that you're planning to, you think about sort of a dinner party that you're going to host and then a joke that you heard last week and so on and so on. And your mind is meandering from one topic to another. I thought this was a super interesting fact that our minds do this for like thirty to fifty percent of our waking life. That's very strange, um, and it seems that it maybe if we're doing it that com- that frequently, that it might be good for something. And so I really set out to try and understand that in philosophy, which really wasn't there wasn't anyone studying, or there were, there were only like a couple people studying that in philosophy and only sort of in passing at the time but i had this problem which is that typically when philosophers are studying an empirical topic what you do is you just read off what the psychology or what most a lot of philosophers do is they read off what psychologists are saying say what is mind wandering well what do the scientists say mind wandering is and the science is sort of and you're trying to use those tools to sort of extract the view that's already there in psychology my problem though was that the view that was in psychology really wasn't capturing the phenomenon that I was interested in, or I think that a lot of people are interested in when they hear about mind wandering. I think it's this exciting thing. So psychologists were thinking of mind wandering as just distraction, so as what's called task unrelated thought. So say you're sitting in lecture and your mind uh, and you're thinking about something else, well anything you're thinking about is mind wandering. So your mind could be wandering from one topic to another. That would be sort of distraction or mind wandering on the standard view. Or you could be fixating on a fight that you just had with your friend and obsessing about that over and over again. And even though your mind's not wandering at all, you're stuck on a single topic that was still classified as mind wandering on the standard view. So I thought as a philosopher, well, you know, we can I can come up with my own view. And I I made so using that that those skills of theory construction, uh developed my own view of mind wandering that was trying to capture this difference between types of experience that sort of in terms of their dynamics or how they unfold over time. So where mind wandering sort of meanders from one topic to another. Um sticky thought that's sort of fixated on one thing and sort of held in a single place or directed thought where you're sort of um focusing your thoughts on a single topic that's also guided sort of remain in place and so mind wandering on my view is thought that is not guided to remain in place and so it meanders from one topic to another so i had this sort of definition of of mind wandering that came from philosophy and it was one that actually lined up i think well, I can say um we can be on this conversation um as it unfolds, but um you know I think it lines up with with lots of scientific uh, it's a good empirical model of mind wandering, but it also lines up with how ordinary people think of mind wandering. So this is the view of mind wandering that you get in some of my research from just when you ask people to sort of classify different Cases of experience as either mind wandering or not. This is how they think about mind wandering as in terms of this dynamic phenomenon. These ordinary people, and also scholars outside of sort of you know traditional academia, like Virginia Woolf, right? Who's a who's a, who's a writer, like a and and people instead sort of ancient. Um, Um, in ancient sort of Buddhist texts, uh, you know, think about this phenomenon in terms of its dynamics, in terms of it's how it's unfolding over time. So it's this view that's around there, that's out there, um, but that wasn't sort of being captured in psychology. Um, And so using these sort of tools of philosophy, that's what I sort of developed is this sort of dynamic theory of uh, mind-wandering in terms of how it meanders from one topic to another over time.
0: Okay, great. So... I would think that mind wandering could be a valuable tool for, say, exploration and creativity in our personal and work lives. And so can you speak to the value of mind wandering in relation to those two things, exploration and creativity? Yeah, for sure. And so part of that comes from the evidence for this
1: comes from there's empirical evidence that it's valuable for sort of creativity and exploration. And that theory that I just gave you where mind wandering sort of meanders from one topic to another isn't guided to remain in place, um, predicts that it should be relevant for that it should be helpful for creativity and exploration. So contrast mind wandering with a type of experience where you're sort of directing your thoughts to focus on a topic. So say you're solving a math problem in your head or you're doing your taxes or um, you're sitting down and you're sort of rigorously studying from a book. It's really, really important that humans can do this. And what we have is what I call sort of forms of guided attention that allow us to focus on one topic for a really, really long period of time um, that are central to the kinds of extended human activities that, you know, Partly make us human, right? That make us the kind of creatures that we are. So those are. It's really important that we can do that. That we can, for example, sit down and study from a book and learn from one thing, focusing focusing on one thing for you know an hour at a time. That's really important, but it comes with a cost. So say you're focusing your attention on um, a a book, right? Or you're focusing your attention on. Uh, a, a math problem, you're focusing your attention on what's relevant to that problem. But the problem is that you don't have perfect access to, you don't know uh, beforehand for certain what's relevant to the things that you're thinking about. And so you start off thinking about a topic, um, like for example, maybe um, some problem that you have for work. Right, and you start thinking about that topic, and you direct your attention to what you assume is relevant to that problem that you have for work. But now you're directing your attention to that what you think is relevant. You're ignoring what you think is irrelevant, and when that goes right, it's great. You're when you're right about what's relevant, then you you focus on the relevant stuff, you ignore the irrelevant stuff, everything's fine and dandy. Um, but sometimes you're wrong. And so there, you can be caught in this self-reinforcing loop where you're sort of ignoring the things that you think aren't important. And because you don't ever focus on those things that you think aren't important, that reinforces your assumptions that they're not important in the first place. right? So that kind of self-reinforcing loops, I think, can happen and often do happen and lead to the kind of problems that we need sort of creativity and exploration to get us out of. That's, I think, part of the function of mind-wandering is that it, because we're not, we're focusing on often like irrelevant things, right? So our minds wander. They're not super, mind wandering is not like, in some ways, is not the most efficient thing, right? So your mind can wander to sort of random topics. And often that's just, you know, Doesn't help you very much. But once in a while, your mind will wander to things that you thought were irrelevant and you were wrong about. And it's precisely those kind of things that you're directing yourself to ignore. Your mind can sort of wander to those things and lead to sort of insights that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So this is the idea that mind wandering would support creativity and exploration. And it turns out there's empirical evidence for this. So I did a study um, recently. That I called the shower effect, which found that mind wandering helped creative incubation when your mind was wandering during periods like when you're taking a shower or taking a walk or, or, uh, you know, washing the dishes or in our case, you're watching like a moderately engaging, uh, video. So during those periods, mind wandering helps to make you creative in precisely the way that I, that that I, that the model predicts. Um, I think another really lovely study was that Um, actually studied real-world artists and physicists, so creative professionals who do this for their job. And for those individuals, um, about 20% of their creative ideas in their daily life, they came up with while their minds were wandering. Um, Which is like... Should be really surprise you. Um, because that's like weird that, you know, you'd come up with an idea, not when you're trying to focus on the problem that you're working on for work, but just when you're idly wandering, you know, taking a walk or, or taking a shower or something else. So we have these ideas that, that can make us, um, creative. And specifically, it seemed that mind wandering is particularly helpful in two different kinds of cases. In one kind of case where you were just stuck on a problem, I think this is where you're in this sort of self reinforcing loop where you don't know how to get out. You're sort of thinking the same way about a problem over and over again, and mind wandering helps you think about it in a new way. And when that happened, and this was also part of the study, is that people reported mind wandering during uh, that mind wandering led to be creative. They, they they reported this experience of like an aha aha experience. So it was particularly common when you were stuck in a loop when you had this experience of like oh that's how to think about it. So you're. You know, you're focused on the wrong way of thinking, framing a problem for work, your mind starts wandering, you think about this new way, and suddenly you're like, oh, I get it. And then you can reframe that problem. That's precisely what the sort of model that I gave you, that's philosophical model, predicts the use of mind wandering should be. It should get us out of those kind of self-reinforcing loops. Um that then would lead to the kind of a high experience that's characteristic of creativity. So I think there's both theoretical and empirical reasons to think that mind wandering might be good in that way. Now, obviously, you know, your mind shouldn't wander all the time, which is why... Um, in my philosophical work, I argue for a balancing norm. I think that mind wandering and directed thinking and this sort of sticky thinking all have their purpose, right? And I think that what we should do is we should balance between those different kinds of of thinking, which fill different roles in our lives. But I think it's a mistake to sort of exclude the wandering mind.
0: Yeah, I find I I walk my dog several times a day, and I find myself uh, thinking about lots of different things, and I do have light bulb moments during that time for sure. <laughs> yeah, and one thing to note is just how, so like that you
1: have light bulb moments. One thing to just to note historically is how maligned those kind of moments have been. So uh, psychologists. Um, so, for example, look, there was a psychologist uh, who who I often quote my my talks, who said that mind wandering was like a curse. And psychologists, the majority of psychologists who talk about mind wandering, some talk about its benefits, but a lot of it talk about, oh, it's so bad for you know, it can lead you to tr- make performance decrements in driving or work or schoolwork, right? And it's this this is really terrible thing. And that's not like a new idea. So Thomas Aquinas, who's a medieval philosopher, he said that mind wandering is the daughter sin of sloth. And William James said that the, the the ability to stop our mind from wandering is, I, I think this is the quote, it's the, the very root of judgment, character, and the will. So it's like, historically, philosophers have thought that this type of mind, this, this type of thinking is like really bad, that you should like get rid of it as much as possible. I think a lot of psychologists take that perspective, too. But again, in our sort of ordinary lives, and also in texts like Virginia Woolf, who, who says that mind wandering is really engages with that negative view and says, but no, mind warming is great, it can lead to some sort of creativity and exploration. Um, That, I think, is very much in, in contrast with that sort of very negative view that you get historically and in contemporary uh, psychology.
0: Great. So um, can you speak about the neuroscientific model that you've developed in collaboration with scientists? Yeah, sure. So
1: earlier on, I said that, uh so these skills that you have as a philosopher can lead you to sort of construct theories and, and make arguments and such. And where that started off for me was just developing a sort of philosophical theory of mind wandering first that's trying to capture its dynamics. But... Um, early on in my, uh, in my career towards the end of the PhD, my PhD, I started talking with neuroscientists and especially Kalina Kristoff was the first sort of major collaborator that I had in psychology, where I would sort of defend my theory of mind, wondering, explain it. And, uh, Kalina and I, Professor Kristoff and I, um, worked together to say, okay, well, could you actually give a model of how that type of experience that you can talk about in philosophy and that people talk about in ordinary life, how that might be implemented in the brain. And so what we did is we developed a neuroscientific model of mind wandering where the idea was that these sort of constraints on thinking that lead your mind not to wander, that they're implemented by the sort of large scale interactions of um, or the 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 interactions of of large scale neural networks, and so the details don't matter so much. What matters is that so what you had is you had this philosophical theory leading to a sort of neural model of how this these philosophical ideas might be implemented in the brain, and so that was I thought it's cool because it makes it tractable. It makes predictions about how this could be implemented in how this philosophical model actually cashes out in the world. But then um, the challenge was, remember how I said there was this dominant view of mind wandering as sort of distraction? We knew how to, one advantage of that view is we knew how to measure it. And so we had all these methods for actually looking at, and, and thousands of studies, literally, using methods to measure this phenomenon. Whereas in contrast, this sort of dynamic phenomenon of thought that meander from one topic to another, or are stuck on a single topic, or directed to a topic, we had no methods to measure those kind of uh, phenomena in the lab or in the everyday life. So the next challenge then, once we developed a sort of neural model of mind wandering, was then to develop methods to measure the wandering mind. And this is actually where I think the, in, in, in my opinion, where the sort of most fruitful interaction between sort of philosophy and, or maybe the most fruitful interaction between philosophy and science has happened in my own career is that the kind of methods you use to, to measure mind-wandering in ordinary life are, or in the lab is you'll, you'll have people going about their daily lives or going about performing a task and then you'll interrupt them and you'll ask questions about their experience. But in order to ask questions about their experience, you need to be able to frame those questions in ways that ordinary people can understand and yet in ways that are still rigorous. Now, thinking back to the very beginning of our conversation, that's exactly the kind of skills that I said the philosophers have. We have sort of, with rigor and charity, right, being able to sort of say things that other people can under, understand and yet that are still rigorous, that don't just like, you know... Uh, gloss over important details. And remember also that the philosophical theory I had was, was developed in part by thinking about how ordinary people think about mind wandering. So you have this philosophical view that's inspired by how ordinary people think about mind wandering. You have tools that philosophers typically have to be able to sort of explain thoughts, hopefully in clear language that people can understand. And we can use those tools then to measure the kind of dynamic phenomenon that until fairly recently, were just opaque to science, right? Like scientists maybe were interested in this, had no ways of measuring it, and thus, you know, it's like that old story where, you know, you're someone's looking for his keys under, under a, a light post because that's where the light's on. Um, uh, it's like that, right? We had methods, and there's other, like, these massive areas of the mind people were interested in but didn't really have methods to measure them, and the sort of philosophy and scientific collaborations helped to do that. Right. So on my own, I couldn't do this. I certainly, at the time, didn't have the sort of empirical training. And I have gained that by working with psychologists since. Um, but also, the psychologists didn't have that I was working with, like Professor Christoph or Professor Caitlin Mills, who's one of my collaborators right now. Um, Professor Sam Murray is a philosopher and psychologist as well. We work very closely together. Um And so in that kind of work together, we end up and my, my postdoc supervisor, Alison Goffnack, right. So all of these people are people who kind of work at the intersection between philosophy and psychology, and can use both these humanistic skills, and these scientific skills together to do things like measure types of experience that until recently had been sort of opaque to, to science. So so where it led to is is not only the sort of empirical model to sort of make predictions about the brain, the mind, but also the sort of methods to be able to make those predictions tractable. And I think all of that is grounded equally in sort of science and a sort of humanistic way of thinking.
0: Great. So finally, um, you've spoken about the importance of interdisciplinary research and partnerships in your work. And. You've yeah. mentioned that UVA's commitment to, is, to interdisciplinarity is, is crucial to this endeavor. Can So can you speak to how UVA has and the culture of UVA has moved your research forward?
1: Yeah. So so one thing to um, so one thing to so. So just to sort of make concrete, like what interdisciplinary research can do. I think there are models where, how the interdisciplinary research can work is people kind of work in their silos and they read each other and they engage with each other. And I think that can be really good and productive. Another kind of approach to interdisciplinarity though, is that you can recognize, you can actually, so this is what a lot of philosophers do, is that empirically informed philosophers, they are informed by um, the science. Um, They're sort of consumers of science. I think that can lead to really, really good work. But another way of doing interdisciplinarity that I think is in certain ways um, more demanding from an institutional perspective is that instead of just consuming the science, you can be an active participant in the scientific process, and you can work with scientists um, to use philosophy to drive the sort of predictions and development of methods in um, in, in scientific work, um, where it's it's this sort of it's really a sort of in, in interplay between the sort of science and the humanists um, that that drives the work forward. Now, the problem with that is that it's it's really demanding from the researcher's perspective and from um, the university's perspective. So from the researcher, what you need to do is you need to learn to speak multiple different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do that, it's not enough to just like read some papers. You need to sit down and spend a lot of time modeling through with people in a different field to be able to learn a language in that field, which is why my advice to a sort of young graduate student who's going into interdisciplinary research is often, if you really, really want to do this seriously, sit in a lab, spend a bunch of time working with scientists themselves and learning to speak their language and learning how to translate your language into theirs. Um, I mean, if you're lucky enough to get a lab that actually cares about that and is interested in it, which some do. Um, and so because that's so challenging, I think what you need is institutions that support that kind of work. So, for example, with the Three Cavaliers Initiative, what you get is um, UVA has this initiative where that it funds researchers across two or three different departments um, to start working on a sort of collaborative interdisciplinary project. And the first one, I've done two of those. The first one was actually between um, religious studies, philosophy, and psychology, where we're looking at the mind, uh, at how to harness the wandering mind, and these sort of cases of like how to to be exploratory and creative. And here, the idea was, look, we can we can say something about this from psychology and philosophy, and sort of try to forge new ground here. But also, there's a there are these very large and well worked out historical traditions in classical Buddhist philosophy. Um, on precisely on this question of how to harness mind wandering in, um, and how to, how to, how to like harness and use the wandering mind. And so we worked with, uh, I worked with Jim Cohn there in the psychology department, um, and then also Sunam Khatru, who used to be in the religious department here. And that forged some of my sort of long lasting collaborations between sort of, uh, Western and, 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 uh, and Indian, uh, philosophy. Um, and still, son and I still still work together on those sort of projects. Um, and again, sort of having that support to spend a year learning how to work with, working with each other, holding a conference, learning how to speak each other's language was crucial. A very different kind of project is actually one that I'm working on right now. And it's with faculty in McIntyre School of Finance, uh, um, Shesha Kulkarni and uh, David Smith, and also with a, we hired a graduate student in the economics department, um, Jessica Montgomery, and so what we've done in this project is um, it's a project on uh, so one of my one of my interests uh, increasingly now is when I'm interested in spontaneity and mind wandering and sort of sticky thought. Uh, one of where um, Professor Gulkarni approached me and said, "Well, how how does this interact with um, poverty?" And so part of, um, in sort of like my own experience, right. So part of, and, and, um, and her own as well. Um, so it seems that like when people are being, and it, there's a large empirical literature on this, um, is that poverty can sort of change how you think. Uh, but often the way that people think about, uh, uh, research that question is in thinking that poverty creates this sort of executive deficits where sort of there's there's scarcity of cognitive resources and so you can't think as you can't control your thoughts as much if you're constantly having to worry about money but that's sort of thinking about it as purely a deficit like some philosophers have recently challenged that and have said instead that uh, I think deborah nelson's work has said instead that like maybe it's not that like you're just less able to control your thoughts. Maybe it's that there's different kinds of things that you have to do when you're worried about how to make the next paycheck work, right? So instead of thinking in a way where you're making long-term plans, for example, and sort of structuring your life as much as possible, you're trying to be flexible so that you can just like get the next money, month's rent. Um, or get the next mortgage, or make sure you have food on the table, and this is sort of where, um, in sort of when I watched, my parents were they were in a, in a small business, since so it was very much month to month for for the majority of their adult lives, it's very much like that. And so, what we wanted to study is how these sort of experiences, like mind wandering or sticky thought or directed thought, how those changed with poverty. And what we're able to do that by working with this, this awesome experiment that Professor Kulkarni has, where what she's done is actually changing the cost of bankruptcy in, in Canada, um, and seeing does providing low-cost bankruptcy, which can thus make bankruptcy, make this sort of financial relief available to a broader range of people. It's not just middle-class people, it's also lower-class people. Does doing that affect how uh, poverty can influence not only your financial situation, but also how it can influence the mind? And so again, that kind of research is requires a lot of time to learn how to speak each other's language, and also just is high-risk interdisciplinary research that um, you really need support from the university to set up because having to sort of get external, like having that sort of first boost to say, all right, spend a year trying to make this work and see what you can do. Where we subsequently got like fairly large grants to support the, the research independently. Um but spending that first year and having that support from the university is, I think, just an absolutely crucial thing in order to make interdisciplinarity work, right? There's so many pressures because it's so much easier to just work within your own department. There's so many pressures to do that, that you really do need incentives and extra support if you are going to do that hard thing of learning the other way. Not that like working within your own discipline is easy, right? Of course it's not. But there's this extra burden and barriers that you need to overcome. And having these incentives and support to overcome them is absolutely crucial. So I think that UVA does a really good job of doing that. But the grand challenges do the same thing at UVA, where they make investments in, as opposed to make investments in this department or that department, they make investments in big areas where researchers across different fields can work together. And of course, this stuff is super duper hard. And again, not all of what's going to be successful, but um, having that support, I think, has really helped a researcher like me.
0: Great. Thank you so much. It's so interesting. I've certainly heard about these kinds of grants, and it's nice to get examples of that um, for everybody and the kind yeah. of commitment UVA has to that. So, thank you so much, uh, Professor Absolutely. Irving, for sharing this information about your research and really sharing um, what UVA is doing also to help to seed seed these kinds of uh, kinds of research. It's really great. So, and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and families. Absolutely, I'm very happy to do so. so great. Great. And thank you so much for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.